0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogacity Podcast for the week of November 6, 2022, the podcast that cooks soup on the grill. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's kismetize the news of the bogus. We've got a lot more information on the government's plan to basically end the First Amendment and police disinformation thanks to leaked documents received by The Intercept. Combined with documents released as a part of discovery in an ongoing lawsuit, years of memos, emails, and documents involving the Department of Homeland Security detail the government's effort to influence, collude with, and even threaten tech platforms. As the Supreme Court ruled in Norwood v. Harrison, the government can't get around the Constitution by incentivizing, threatening, cajoling, or otherwise influencing third parties to violate it for them. When that happens, the third party, no matter how private they might be, is to be considered a state actor. That's consistent with many other decisions, such as Rendell Baker v. Cohn, Burton v. Wilmington Parking Authority, and Brentwood Academy v. Tennessee Secondary School Athletic Association. And don't go thinking that the shutting down of the Disinformation Governance Board means they've stopped it in any way. Back in March, FBI official Laura Demlow warned that what she referred to as subversive information on social media could undermine support for the U.S. government, the very sort of speech the First Amendment is there to protect. She had said to senior executives from Twitter and J.P. Morgan Chase, quote, We need a media structure that is held accountable. Facebook and Instagram have even formulated processes for government officials to flag content requesting it be throttled or suppressed. This is done by a special Facebook portal that can only be used by government or law enforcement. We already know about the efforts to stem open skepticism of the public about the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, spread the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop, and stop alternative viewpoints surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. But apparently, all that's just scratching the surface. The documents outline the department's plan to target bad information on a wide range of topics, including the origins of SARS-CoV-2, possible adverse effects of the COVID vaccine, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and information about the Russo-Ukrainian war that's at odds with state interests. A DHS report even said, quote, "...the challenge is particularly acute in marginalized communities." which are often the targets of false or misleading information, such as false information on voting procedures targeting people of color. Racist as well as fascist! Nowhere to be found is clear criteria on what actually counts as disinformation, other than whatever some government official says it is. Of particular focus was the 2020 election, where the government flagged numerous posts as suspicious, many of which were taken down afterwards. A 2021 report from Stanford University's Election Integrity Partnership looked at 4,800 flagged items and found that tech platforms took action on 35% of them, either labeling them, soft blocking with a warning, or even removing them entirely. Again, according to multiple Supreme Court precedents, that would absolutely count as a First Amendment violation. And in the months leading up to the 2020 election, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Wikipedia, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Verizon Media, and other tech companies met on a monthly basis with the FBI, SISA, and other government agents and continued to do so to discuss how the firm should handle disinformation and Under Biden, if anything, it's been stepped up. Cisa created a misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation team, and you know it's a bad sign when there's three kinds of Newspeak just in the title the team, according to one size official, quote, counters all types of disinformation to be responsive to current events. And in June, they said the agency should be monitoring, quote, social media platforms of all sizes, mainstream media, cable news, hyper-partisan media, talk radio, and other online resources for disinformation. The report makes it clear that DHS considers tracking and stopping disinformation as one of its core duties, and even considers it to be a form of terrorism, calling those who spread it, quote, domestic violent extremists. Another term thrown around for them is threat actors. And yes, that means that FBI official Jill Sanborn committed perjury when she told Congress that the FBI doesn't monitor social media when in fact they spent millions of dollars on tracking and monitoring software. So when she claimed that's totes why they missed all of the threats of insurrection leading up to Jan 6, well, just add that to the numerous questions about their investigation. Jonathan Turley, law professor at George Washington University, said, There is growing evidence that the legislative and executive branch officials are using social media companies to engage in censorship by surrogate. It is axiomatic that the government cannot do indirectly what it is prohibited from doing directly. If government officials are directing or facilitating such censorship, it raises serious First Amendment questions. And Adam Kandub. Law professor at Michigan State University said, "...when the government suggests things, it's not too hard to pull off the velvet glove and you get the male fist. And I would consider such actions, especially when it's bureaucratized, as essentially state action and government collusion with the platforms." The only question that seems to be left is, who's going to take action against this blatant censorship? without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. George Will is a political commentator who goes way back, writing for WAPO, MSNBC, and many others. And he just wrote a column saying that neither Biden nor Harris should run in 2024. Will begins his reasoning with something Biden said about his $426 billion student loan forgiveness, which was that it was a law that he had just signed, which might have just been a misspeak except he went on to say, I got it passed by a vote or two. But there was no vote! Biden passed this unilaterally by executive order! Will wrote... Congress was not involved in this cataract of money from the Treasury in violation of the Constitution's Appropriations Clause. It is frightening that Biden does not know or remember what he recently did regarding an immensely important policy. He must be presumed susceptible to future episodes of similar bewilderment. He should leave the public stage on Jan 20, 2025. As for Kamala Harris, the main problem is that she hasn't disappeared from public eye completely, as is traditional with VPs. Instead, she's been very active, showing her unfitness on the grounds of both morality and competency. He referred to these comments she made at a talk in Louisiana regarding broadband access.
1: Uh, The governor and I, and we were all um, doing a tour of the library here, and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children.
0: And in a talk about the Inflation Reduction Act.
1: I mean, so much. So I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm very excited about is what we have been doing in terms of electric vehicles. Um, And I I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses. (laughs) I really do. And we're manufacturing them in our country. I've been to the manufacturing plants. I've, I've been on these electric school buses. And think about it. Aside from the pandemic, on a daily basis... 25 million children in our country every day go to school on those diesel-fueled school buses. And hundreds, thousands of school bus drivers are driving those buses, which are then these people, these children, these adults, are inhaling what is toxic air.
0: And he gives several other examples. Will wrote, She sounds, as a critic has said, like someone giving a book report on a book she has not read. Her style betrays a self-satisfied exaggeration of her aptitudes. Lacking natural talent, she needs to prepare, but evidently doesn't. Complacency and arrogance make a ruinous compound. So yeah, neither of them demonstrates any sort of ability, and if they are at all aware of how inept they are, they just don't care. Will wrote, Biden is not just past his prime, even adequacy is in his past. And this is Harris's prime. In 2024, the Republican Party might present the nation with a presidential nominee whose unfitness has been demonstrated. After next Tuesday's sobering election results, Democrats should resolve not to insult and imperil the nation by doing likewise. If the Republicans run Trump again, They'll have an enormous voter base that feels completely vindicated. If they otherwise run a candidate that's competent and demonstrates a capable forthrightness, he'll look even better to the voters. So basically, the biggest way the Democrats could tank the 2024 election is by nominating either of these imbeciles. The question is, can they give up their entitled narcissism long enough to do it? And now some welcome news, even if it's not everything we want. The CDC has begun to officially walk back its 2016 guidance on prescription opioids, which was chock full of misinformation that resulted in the torture of chronic pain patients, many of whom ended up committing suicide. The 2016 guidelines caused immense harm as they were pushed by gleeful drug warrior law enforcement officers looking for excuses to violate people's rights, politicians who have millions of pain patients to scapegoat, state medical boards who never saw medical fascism they didn't like, and insurers who love excuses not to pay for these things. Losing out, of course, were pain patients and their doctors. The report is full of these political hacks trying to evade accountability for their horrible position, claiming that their guidelines were misapplied, which they acknowledge resulted in, quote, untreated and undertreated pain, serious withdrawal symptoms, worsening pain outcomes, psychological distress, overdose, and suicide. All of which was a result of them following the guidelines! And the result was the real opioid crisis, a crisis of untreated and undertreated pain where many pain patients saw their medicine rapidly reduced or cut off entirely, often with grave consequences, including not only suicide, but also overdose as they turned to the black market in desperation. The new guidelines cover the use of prescription opioids for both acute pain after surgery and chronic pain. The guidelines could affect as many as one in five Americans. Christopher Jones, acting head of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, said, The guideline recommendations are voluntary and meant to guide shared decision-making between a clinician and patient. It's not meant to be implemented as absolute limits of policy or practice by clinicians, health systems, insurance companies, governmental entities. Dr. Samer Naruza, president of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, said, quote, You can tell the culture around the 2016 guidelines was just to cut down opioids, that opioids are bad. It's the opposite here. You can sense they are more caring about patients living in pain. It's directed more towards relieving their pain and their suffering. It remains to be seen if state and federal authorities pay any attention to them or continue on their psychotically destructive path. Northeastern University law professor Leo Bilecki said, CDC needs to be a lot more proactive than just putting out this update and trying to walk back some of the misinterpretation of the previous version. Referring to the daily limit of 90 morphine milligram equivalents in the 2016 recommendations, quote, The 2016 guideline itself was clear that this was not a bright-line rule, that it became a de facto label separating appropriate and inappropriate prescribing. And he pointed out that law enforcement even uses it, quote, as a sword to go after prescribers. Cindy Steinberg, patient advocate with U.S. Pain Foundation, said, quote, Most people that I know, and I know a lot of people living with chronic pain, have already been taken off their medication. Doctors are incredibly fearful of prescribing at all. She points out that, even with the update, the guidelines are still way too restrictive and won't make much difference to patients who have already been hurt by all this. They did at least get rid of the arbitrary limits, as well as warning doctors about rapidly tapering or discontinuing opioids. But Stefan Kurtes, professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, said, quote, I would emphasize that when you take a stable patient and reduce their medicine, you're engaged in an experiment. Dose reduction is simply an uncertain intervention that sometimes helps and sometimes causes the patient to die. I would rather they have said, Look, this is an uncertain intervention. It will have absolutely no effect unless three major agencies take action immediately. The DEA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. All three agencies use the dose thresholds from the 2016 guideline as the basis for payment quality metrics and legal investigation. Dr. Antje Bereveld, Medical Director of the Pain Management Services at Newton Wellesley Hospital, hopes that this will reverse the trend of pain patients being unable to find treatment because doctors are too scared to prescribe it. She describes one case, quote, I recommended to the primary care doctor to start low-dose opioids, and the primary care doctor said no. What happened? The patient was admitted to the hospital, thousands of dollars a day for eight days, and what was she discharged on? Two to three pills of an opioid a day. It's at least a start at an improvement. Unfortunately, when I picked mine up at the pharmacy yesterday, I was given literature with the same old fear-mongering propaganda. It began with an outright lie, quote, Prescription opioids come with serious risks, including dependence, addiction, and even death. It says prescription opioids are responsible for 40 deaths a day. Of course, as we've covered repeatedly, they're just blaming prescription opioids for what's actually happening due to illicitly manufactured fentanyl on the black market. The pamphlet goes on to fearmonger about overdose, which is practically impossible with prescription opioids, and more than a thousand people are treated at emergency rooms daily when, again, it's black-market fentanyl that's to blame. And also, like we've covered, they're ignoring the problem of polypharmacology, taking opioids along with alcohol and other illicit drugs. The most damaging is the line, Opioids should not be the first-line or routine therapy for chronic pain when, if anything, it's by far the best and safest tool that pain patients have. And that's something that the new guidelines do nothing to counter. It's nothing but a pack of bald-faced lies that only make people afraid to take the medicine they need. It's as harmful as it is psychopathic. So we'll see how long it takes everyone to get the idea, and if the CDC moves forward with it to even more sensible recommendations. Do you have children? Or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now it's time to personalize this week's biggest bogan emitter. And speaking of vice presidents who disappeared from public view the whole time they were in office, it's too bad that's not still true of Mike Pence. I mean, we always knew the guy was an evil evangelical asshat, but going directly against the First Amendment like this? Yes, he says that freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. But remember, everyone, conservatives are exactly like libertarians and want government out of your life. Pence said to Larry Kudlow, quote, Well, the radical left believes that the freedom of religion is the freedom from religion, but it's nothing the American founders ever thought of or generation of Americans fought to defend. Oh, yeah? How about Thomas Jefferson, who wrote in the 1776 Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, To compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. And no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer, on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain, their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. Or maybe he forgot about James Madison, who wrote, The settled opinion here is that religion is essentially distinct from civil government, and exempt from its cognizance, that a connection between them is injurious to both, that there are causes in the human breast which ensure the perpetuity of religion without the aid of the law. A legal establishment of religion without a toleration could not be thought of, and with toleration is no security for public quiet and harmony, but rather a source itself of discord and animosity. But Pence went on to advocate for outright Christian nationalism. He and other evangelicals want you to ignore the anti-establishment clause and focus only on the free exercise clause. Of course, like all authoritarians, he's only imagining that it's his particular brand of religion that'll be forced onto people. If it were some other religion being compelled, who wants to bet he'd be among the first shrieking about the First Amendment? Freedom of religion absolutely means freedom from religion. You can't have one without the other. And since that's a founding principle of America, if anyone's going against the greatness of the nation, It's Pence. So all that makes Mike Pence this week's Biggest Bogon emitter I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's fetalize this week's Idiot Idiot extraordinary. Extraordinary. And it's another one for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who really seems to be going off the paranoid conspiracy deep end. For those of you who've been living under a rock, Elon Musk bought Twitter. AOC apparently thinks that Musk is targeting her specifically because she's such a narcissist that way. She tweeted, Also, my Twitter mentions and notifications conveniently aren't working tonight, so I was informed via text that I seem to have gotten under a certain billionaire's skin. Just a reminder that money will never buy your way out of insecurity, folks." Yeah, it's just a bug. A simple glitch a lot of people experienced, of the kind that happens all the time. But to an egomaniac like AOC, everything is about them. A number of other people have been tweeting about being unable to see their notifications, so if she just searched it, she could have saved herself some embarrassment. But apparently, something not being about her isn't something she even considers. It's also just one more data point on how absolutely stupid she is. If Musk wanted to take action against her, couldn't he do a lot worse than just temporarily limit her notifications? At any rate, Musk has said, and multiple others have verified, that no changes will be made to how Twitter runs the site for at least a few weeks, since he needs time to put the team together and set up the new process for content moderation. For years, the left has been screeching that conservatives are paranoid about being censored on Twitter and other platforms. And, of course, there are those who attribute every last thing to censorship, but there are also plenty of genuine actions, not the least of which is the Hunter Biden laptop story which Twitter disallowed completely, falsely claiming it was a result of hacking. Apparently, she thought it was from her criticizing Musk's plan to charge $8 a month to maintain a blue checkmark, as well as viewing fewer ads and being able to post long-form audio and video. She tweeted, Yo, Elon Musk, while I have your attention, why should people pay $8 just for their app to get bricked when they say something you don't like? This is what my app has looked like ever since my tweet upset you yesterday. What's good? Doesn't seem very free-speechy to me. Because of course she complains about things not being given to her for free. She had upped the embarrassing behavior with an Instagram post where she said, quote, When I get home, I see a text from my team saying, Hey, let me know if you need any help with this Elon stuff. And I was like, what? So I pulled up my Twitter app, and it's like, gone. Like, when you pull up your mentions and stuff like that, it's just like, literally like a blank screen. Totally gone. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. So it turns out we got under a certain little billionaire's skin. By the way, imagine her saying all this with the smarmiest look on her face. After she got roundly mocked and memed for it, Musk twisted in the knife by tweeting, "'What can I say? It was a naked abuse of power.'" So someone who thinks free speech means giving her free stuff also thinks that a simple bug must be the richest man in the world out to get her. But that's basically what we've come to expect. So all of that makes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week's Idiot Idiot Extraordinary! Well, that wraps up this. It's just the Catholics next door, I'm afraid. I'll just go and burn them back in a minute. Edition of the Wigacity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from L. Neil Smith. Some founding fathers, like John Adams, were deeply religious. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, which is what an 18th century agnostic called himself if he didn't want to be burned alive. Thomas Paine was an atheist. Ben Franklin was a member of the Hellfire Club. A Jew, Haym Solomon, bankrolled the American Revolution. To claim that our country was founded by Christians alone is to insult the spirit and grandeur of the First Amendment. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, on commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Bogosity.